All right, well, I want to invite you to please open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 7, and we're going to finish a study titled, I am a Pharisee when... Mark chapter 7 verses 1 through 13 reveals four defining actions that characterize a religious Pharisee. The Pharisees of Jesus' day couldn't be characterized by one single trait, but there, there were these all-encompassing uh, actions. And this is what disturbed Jesus so much. Rather than blessing God's people with their faith and love and care, they burden God's people with legalism and their traditions as they exercise these actions which characterize their unbelieving hearts. The outline is in your notes. If you were here with us last week, it's going to look very familiar because it's virtually unchanged except for the sermon reflection questions that are down in the bottom that are going to reflect our third and fourth points which we're going to look at today. Let's begin by reading our passage once again together. Mark chapter 7 Verse 1 through 13 says this, The Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him when they had come from Jerusalem and had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? And he said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. He was also saying to them, you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or his mother, whatever I have that would help you is Corban, that is to say given to God, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition which you have handed down. And you do many things such as that. The sermon proposition is in your notes. It's identical to last week. You might be a Pharisee if these four defining actions characterize your life, showing your need for Christ and the gospel. The first defining action that we looked at last week confirmed this. I am a Pharisee when I self-righteously judge the actions of others. And it challenged our hearts with questions like these. How might the example of the Pharisees serve as a warning to you and I when being judgmental or critical of others? In what specific areas is your heart and mind vulnerable to judging the actions of others? The second defining action that we confirmed is, I am a Pharisee when I self-righteously exalt my own traditions and standards. When we studied verses 3 through 5, it challenged our hearts with questions such as, are there any traditions or standards that I exalt in a self-righteous manner? What freed Paul from the shackles of 
his pharisaical tradition. How can the message of the gospel liberate you? And if you weren't here for that message last week, you can go online and you'll find it on our website. You can listen to it in, in, in its full length. But for now, we're going to continue right where we left off with our third defining action of a Pharisee, which is your third point in your outline. I am a Pharisee when my heart is divorced from my obedience. Typically, when the Lord Jesus Christ encountered resistance in the Gospels, and we see this often, he does something. He asks them questions. He tries to draw out understanding. But the time has come that he has done with the Pharisees. He isn't asking any questions. Instead of asking them questions, he unleashes divine judgment fueled by his righteous indignation. Look at verses 6 through 8. He said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far, far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men, neglecting the commandment of God. You hold to the tradition of men. Jesus again employs his favorite term to describe the scribes and Pharisees. The word hypocrites, we talked about this briefly last week, that it's mentioned 18 times in all the instances it's mentioned in Jesus' connection to the scribes and Pharisees. What I didn't share is what the word actually means, which I knew we were going to cover in this verse. In English, a hypocrite is someone who deliberately and as a, of a habit professes to be good when he's aware that he's not. In, in the Greek, it's actually a transliteration of the Greek word hypocrites. Sounds very similar, doesn't it? Every time that Jesus refers to the Pharisees, he's referring to them as hypocrites. And its origin, in its origin, it means a, a play actor or an actor in a play. He is taking a term from the theater, meaning to play a part on stage. It was common, especially in Greek theater, for actors to wear various masks according to their role impersonated. Anyone ever been to an opera? Raise your hand. Anyone? I know we have a lot of classical... Um, the, the opera, you see this taking place. Rather than have to change their complete outfit, what they'll do is they'll they'll, they'll um, sometimes just have a mask, right? They'll hold a handheld mask to represent the character. Well, the word hypocrite came to mean someone who acts a role without sincerity or a pretender. And this made me mindful of my own wife's testimony when she was back in junior high and attended a church retreat, and the theme of that retreat was unmasking the pretender. And she had the opportunity to listen to the preaching ministry of Jerry Ragg, who came to teach at that retreat. And the Lord unveiled the fact that she was a pretender. Even though that she had gone to church, even though that she was raised in a Christian family, even though she, she had, had access to the traditions of the church, the Lord pierced her heart with the gospel and it exposed that her faith in Christ wasn't real. 
She said that she even remembers on the retreat booklet, there was a picture of a guy taking off a mask on the booklet. Her faith in Christ became real that weekend when her heart responded to the gospel. What about you? Is your faith real? Is your faith real? Or do you wear a mask? Is there this facade or this illusion of pretending? Likewise, maybe you were even raised in the church. Maybe you have access to all the, the, the traditions of a Christian family and the church. How can you be certain that you're not wearing a pharisaical mask? Important question. How can you be certain that you are not wearing a pharisaical mask? The Lord provides insight in these verses. And he does so by quoting the prophet Isaiah when he says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. At the most fundamental level, the Lord Jesus Christ strikes at the heart. Their hearts are disengaged, divorced from their obedience. And even though things look righteous, even though they look religious externally, and this had nothing to do with their lack of commitment or their dedication, to some degree we could say that there were none more committed than the Pharisees. Jesus reveals the internal problem, that their hearts were far away from God. And what they did was in vain. Their obedience fulfilled their commitment to their system, their system of works righteousness, according to established traditions. And this was idolatrous, and it reflected hearts that are not driven by, by faith and true worship. And if I can revert back to the mask illustration, I think by default, we typically think of a mask covering the face. But this was, this was a cover-up of the heart, Right? And its root goes all the way back to that fall in the garden. Right? What did they do when they became unrighteous? What did they do? They went and they hid from God. They hid. There was, there was this immediate recognition that there needs to be a covering. I'm exposed. Jesus is saying, I see your heart. I see what you're hiding behind, and you cannot fool me. Adults, if you've ever had the opportunity to play hide-and-go-seek with young kids, you know that it can be pretty fun, right? They go into the other room to hide, and they think somehow that they, they, they have this capacity to, to, to actually hide from us. I remember the first time playing hide-and-go-seek with Lydia, and I went into the living room, and she was underneath this end table, this high end table that had no covering, and she, had, she was basically twisting herself like upside down and pressing herself into the, the corner. That was her, her, her attempt to be hidden. And the Pharisees foolishly think that they can hide behind their traditions, right? 
And God is there. He's in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is exactly what he's doing. He's calling them out and saying, I see your heart. You're not hidden. You're not covered in righteousness. Not only this, but according to verse 7, they're teaching their tradition as doctrine when they're just precepts of men. This is vain or worthless worship because it isn't according to God's prescribed means. So question for you, is it bad to have traditions? I mean, we see it uh, spelled throughout this passage. We talk about how it's woven into the fabric of this passage. Is that what this passage is teaching? That, that we shouldn't embrace tradition? Not necessarily. Listen to what the Lord led Paul to record even after he was saved out of zealously following his ancestral traditions. 1 Corinthians 11, 1 and 2. Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and holdly firm to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. 2 Thessalonians 2.15 So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Again in 2 Thessalonians 3.6 now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you received from us. Certainly, Paul saw the value of keeping traditions that flowed out of a heart of genuine faith, traditions that flowed out of true faith and true worship. Traditions that flowed out of a heart to worship God that encouraged obedience. Not following traditions for tradition's sake. It was also Paul who wrote a warning to the Colossians when he wrote, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, rather than according to Christ in Colossians 2.8. Nobody understood the threat of tradition more than Paul, who spent his life entrenched in ancestral tradition. Yet, at the same time, we can also say that he knew both the danger and the value. And this serves as a good warning for us, a good lesson. We have traditions that we practice as believers, don't we? We, we, we pray be, before we eat, typically. There's a number of traditions that we have here at Cornerstone, even on a Sunday. At the start of our service, traditionally, we read a psalm or we read a scripture and pray to start our service. We traditionally sing three to four worship songs to praise the Lord. Traditionally, we hear a sermon preached. Traditionally, we celebrate communion once per month. There's, there's both commands and guidance from principles in Scripture that, that, that help us. Yet I want to draw our attention to this fact. If our hearts are divorced from God who be, is behind those traditions, we are just as vulnerable to worshiping the Lord in vain. J.C. Ryle had this to say. The heart is the part of man which God chiefly notices. 
the bowed head, the bended knee, the grave face, and the rigid posture, the ritual response, and the formal amen, all these together do not make up a spiritual worshiper. The eyes of God look further and deeper. He requires the worship of the heart. My son, he says to every one of us, give me your heart. Let us remember this in the public congregation. It must not content us to take our bodies to church if we leave our hearts at home. The eye of man may detect no flaw in our service. Our minister may look at us with commendation. Our neighbors may think of us, of, of, think of us patterns of what a Christian ought to be. Our voice may be heard foremost in the praise and prayer. But it is all worse than nothing in God's sight. If our hearts are far away, it is only wood, hay, and stubble before him who discerns thoughts and reads the secrets of the inward man. Let us remember this in our private devotions. It must not satisfy us to say good words if our hearts and our lips do not go together. So what is the answer to this problem? It comes in the sermon proposition. These defining actions showed the Pharisees their need for Christ and the gospel. The Pharisees needed converted hearts. They needed hearts that trusted completely in God and the righteousness that comes through him, through faith. They needed to come face to face with what Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 shared in the Old Testament, that there are none righteous no, not one. That's where Paul gets it from when he quotes it in Romans 3. They needed to hide themselves behind the righteousness of God rather than the self-righteousness of traditions and attempts to keep the law. And as New Testament believers redeemed by the grace of the gospel, having hearts that are born again, to worship in spirit and in truth. If ever we show any aspects of legalism, then we also need to repent of it and hide again behind the cross and the imputed righteousness that is ours in Christ. This ensures that our worship and our obedience will be focused on Christ and grounded in the gospel. And it's the very reason for which God saved us so that we can worship Him and give Him glory. 1 Peter 1-2 reminds us that through the sanctifying work of the Spirit that we are born again to obey Jesus Christ. Romans 6, 17 and 18 affirms the gospel impact on our hearts when Paul wrote, but thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. It's all about the heart. If your heart is not justified, your worship cannot be either. If your heart is not in Christ, then your obedience will be fueled by something else other than a love for God. 
And I want you to notice something in chapter 7 as you look there. Look at what the very next passage in in chapter 7 is going to talk about. The heading even says it for verses 14 through 23. The heart of man. This isn't ironic. The Pharisees had hearts that were completely divorced from their obedience. And only Christ and the gospel could rescue them. Their commitment to their tradition only cemented their problem. And you may have already noticed the threefold progression of their tradition connected to the law. Not only did they add tradition to the law, not only did they elevate it to be equal to the law, but third, and as we're about to see, it reaches its peak of corruption when it distorts the purpose of the law, which brings us to our fourth and final defining action in our outline. I am a Pharisee when I self-righteously distort the purpose of the law. In verses 9 through 13, our Lord functions much like an effective prosecutor in court when defending and upholding the law while challenging the Pharisees' distortion of it. He provides an accusation, then evidence, and then reaches a verdict because he truly is the judge. Let's start with the accusation in verse 9. He was also saying to them, You are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. And this is so much stronger in the Greek. And I really like the ESV and how they translate it here. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. In the Greek, it's also in the present tense. So there's this habitual pattern that's also enveloped in in, in the verse. It could even be rendered, you have a fine way of making it your habit of rejecting the commandment of God to erect your tradition. R. Kent Hughes says, this was enough to make them choke. Because for the Pharisees, the oral law was equally binding with the Scriptures. There were some who even believed it was more precious and authoritative than Scripture. They were horrified, end quote. We spent enough time under our second point talking about the fact how they used the Mishnah and elevated their tradition to be on par with the law and in some cases put it above the law. And so if you weren't here for that message, again, another reason to go back and listen Now we need to spend some time considering how their tradition distorted the purpose of the law. And Jesus is going to submit the evidence by providing a strong example in verses 10 through 12. Starting in verse 10, Jesus says, For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother. And he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. Isn't that... Doesn't that get your attention? You know... When we think about just the provision of our parents and what the law required of Israel and the the, the degree of honor, sobering. Sobering. Verse 11, But you say, if a man says to his father or his mother, whatever I have that would help you is Corban, that is to say, given to God, You no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother. The evidence of Corbin brings Jesus' critique of their oral tradition all the way to the forefront. 
Every Jew understood the fifth commandment in the Torah to honor one's father and mother, including taking care of them as they aged. And the scribes and Pharisees who were experts in the law would have known all four places that it's mentioned in the Torah. Exodus 20, 12, 21 and 17, Leviticus 29, Deuteronomy 5, 16. The Pharisees knew the law well, but they actually created the, this oral tradition that allowed them to sidestep this law by declaring something as Corban. Corban is derived from a Hebrew word, and it means offering. And there was a rabbinic custom that extended from the practice of, of devoting particular goods in Leviticus 27-28 and Numbers 18-14. Think about Corban as deferred giving. And in a modern picture, this would be like willing something to somebody Before you die, a person may will property or finances to someone else, to a charity, to an institution that goes into effect at their death. But until that time, the person retains possession, right? We, we, We still get to use it. We have control over that property and finances. When it came to the concept of Corbin, a person could dedicate goods to God and also withdraw them from ordinary use while retaining control. So there's a little bit of an addition. Not only could you dedicate it to the temple, but you could also just set it aside so that if it was something, it wouldn't get worn out or it wouldn't be overused. For example, if your neighbor kept coming over to borrow something, wanted to borrow your your shovel, you know, and they, whatever object, you know, neighbors lent to each other, maybe things that could get worn out or cracked. They could declare it as Corbin and, and they wouldn't have to share it. But here, this example involves the parents. When it came to the concept of Corbin, a person could dedicate goods to God and also withdraw them from ordinary use while retaining control. So what is happening here in verse 11 would go something like this. A son declares his property as Corbin, which at his death will pass over to the temple In the meantime, however, the son retains control over the property and his control deprives his parents. It deprives them of the support that otherwise would have been available to them from the property in their old age. One commentator said, a man goes through the formality of vowing something to God, not that he may give it to God, but in order to prevent some other person from having it, end quote. And like so many other people, he was able to say what I struggle to say in so few words. Appreciate people who can do that. Economy of words. This was an extremely selfish and greedy tradition. But it it doesn't stop here. It gets even worse. Once property had been given over to God, priests discouraged anyone from withdrawing it from its Corbin status. Even if they should ever need it. The priests would discourage it. How did they do that? James Edwards writes, According to Josephus, priests required 50 shekels from a man and 30 from a woman to cancel Corbin. Now, what does that mean in terms of price to us? Well, those of you who recall, Judas betrayed Jesus for how many shekels of silver? Remember? 
30? Is it 30? I believe so. Can't remember exactly, but, but let me just tell you, let me just tell you the, the, the value here. 50 shekels for the man would be just under two months of, of wage, working six days a week. That offers some perspective. That if you wanted to get something back, something that you, you dedicated, two months of your salary today would have to go to the temple in order to get it released for the man. Just over a month's labor, right, for, for, for the woman. And the reason why it was probably a little bit less for, for women is because typically they, they were at home. They may have had a trade where they were able to sell some stuff out of the home, but the man was a provider and, and, and worked full time. He goes on to say, the practice of Corbin resulted in egregious casuistry. I had to look that word up too. He's always using some words that I don't know what they mean. Casuistry. By annulling a moral commandment of the Torah, honor of parents, by ritual practice of the oral tradition, Corbin. A concrete and unambiguous moral good, honor your father and mother, is not simply thereby nullified, but actually reversed by forbidding a child to do, quote, anything for his father or mother, end quote. Referencing verse 12. The Pharisees were self-righteously distorting the purpose of the law for their own benefit, and they knew it. They even devised the concept of Corban so that they could receive a kickback at the temple. And this was a greedy and filthy practice that they created and they upheld. And Jesus has no choice but to call them out on it. And he releases his verdict, which we see in verse 13. Thus you invalidate the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down. And you do many things such as that. Corbin is not simply just a bad apple in, in, in the, the lot of tradition. But it, tipti- it typifies the, the comprehensive distortion of God's word promoted by the traditions and methods of the scribes and Pharisees. And I want you to notice the trend in this verdict. He, he, I'm telling you, he, he's like a prosecutor in, in, in a court of law. You invalidate the word. Your tradition, which you handed down. You do many things such as that. Jesus had the Pharisees cornered. And he wasn't going to let them escape. And if you were a bystander in the crowd during that time, and the Pharisees, who are the religious elite, are being confronted and cornered just like this, you are just standing there in shock. They would have been shocked as they saw these religious heavyweights. right? The religious elite taking a beating getting beaten with the truth by the Lord Jesus Christ. And I was trying to think of a modern illustration of a picture. This would be like Jesus standing on the steps of the Vatican in Rome and calling out every single religious leader for saying that you uphold tradition and elevate tradition to the degree that what? It's above Scripture. It's unbiblical. Your gospel is in sacramental captivity. I 
That, ironically, is a, a very good illustration of what it would look like today. The Lord's closing remark sums up his verdict at the end of verse 13. And you do many things such as that. And the verb here again is in the present tense, so it could be translated, and you make it your habit to do many things such as that. R. Kent Hughes concluded with this profound statement. He says, this amazing twisting of God's word by people who esteemed it as holy is especially revealing. Those who try to justify themselves by the law end up modifying it in order to escape its authority. In the same way, those who handle God's word without submitting to it are in the constant process of conforming it to their self-complacency. Get that? That, that, is, that is like, gets right to the matter. Right there. Those who try to justify themselves by the law end up modifying it in order to escape its authority. And in the same way, those who handle God's word without submitting to it are in constant process of conforming it to their self-complacency. And so I think as, we, as we, we wrap up this study on the Pharisees, I believe that this quote provides some very good questions for us to, to ask um, our own hearts. How might you and I be tempted to distort or modify God's word in order to escape its authority? How do you, what, what comes to mind? This is easy to point the finger at the Pharisees who are entrenched in their legalism, but what about you? You know, we, we've heard that expression every time you point your finger, there's three pointing back at you. Well, it's different for a believer, and let me tell you how. Every time you point your finger, God's pointing back at you. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Right there. Conviction. Aren't there times that we need to repent of, of modifying the scripture, right, to, to accommodate um, its authority so that we don't feel guilty about a temptation or sin in our lives? We do. We do. Another question, how does our lack of submission to God's word conform it to our complacency? As you and I study the word, because we're new creations, because God has, has, has fueled our hearts in such a way, there's a growing sensitivity to the commands of Scripture. There's, there's um, a, an increase in that sensitivity to the Scripture, not being desensitized to it. And this third question, which you're going to spend some time answering, you're like, wait, you're asking all these questions. I want you to think about them. Everyone has has the, their own aspects that they're dealing with, but how, uh, this question, how should the gospel impact my view of God's word? You ever thought about that? How should the gospel impact your view of God's word? When our hearts are born again, we are born again to love God and to love his commandments. In Romans 12, 9, the Holy Spirit led Paul to record a verse connected to our love, where it says, let love be without hypocrisy. 
Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. The question I want to submit to you is how do we know what to cling to if we're to call to cling to what is good? How do we know what to abhor if we're called to hate that which is evil? The law of Christ is quintessential to the Christian life. And here's what Sinclair Ferguson writes when refuting both legalism and antinomianism in his new book called The Whole Christ. I'm going to read this quote. It's so good. It's true that the New Testament teaches us about the law of love. Love is the fulfilling of the law. Indeed, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But love is never said to be a replacement for law in Scripture for several important reasons. The first is that love is what law commands, and the commands are what love fulfills. The law of love is not a freshly minted new covenant idea. It is enshrined at the heart of the old covenant of faith and life. It, has to, it was to be Israel's constant confession. The Lord is one, and he is to be loved in a whole-souled manner. The second is often overlooked principle. Love requires direction and principles of operation. Love is motivation but it is not self-interpreting direction. Paul's exposition of the Christian life in Romans 13, 8-10 involves the significant principle that love is the fulfilling of the law. But he spells out for us that the law he is talking about in this context is the commandments. That is the Ten Commandments. He cites four of the neighbor love commandments in the order in which they appeared in the Greek Old Testament in Deuteronomy 5, 17-21. But he does not isolate these particular commandments, adultery, murder, stealing, coveting. Rather, he goes on to include any other commandment. This is, uh, this is the part I want you to dial in. Commandments are the railroad tracks on which the life empowered by the love of God poured into the heart by the Holy Spirit runs. Love empowers the engine Law guides the direction. They are mutually independent. The notion that love can operate apart from law is a figment of the imagination. It is not only bad theology, it's poor psychology. It has to borrow from law to give eyes to love. And that, I know, is something that has been heard before in, in our church, in our ministry. And what is Sinclair ultimately saying? The same thing that I previously shared. That the love that God fuels our hearts with within the gospel empowers our spiritual engine while the law of Christ is giving us direction. We cannot distort it. We cannot dismiss it. We must cling to it and understand it for our sanctification and our redemptive purpose that calls us to live lives for His glory. And you know, I think that there's an, uh, there's an increase within the church, a growing sensitivity, I think, even as it relates to the commands with um, some aspects of what's called new antinomianism. And this book is, what I've read so far, I'm not endorsing it completely because I haven't read the whole thing. But what I have read from Sinclair Ferguson, who's a very godly man, has been very, very good. 
And there's this tendency that we can, as, as believers, even develop this antinomian or against the law mindset, can't we? Like, if we, if we tell somebody that as a slave to righteousness, that you are called and have a responsibility to obey Christ. There are people in some ministries and some churches that would just put the, they give you the Heisman. They put the arms up. They keep you at an arm's length. No condemnation. We're under grace, right? No law. But that's not what the scriptures teach. The, the scriptures clearly teach us that as it relates to Christ's fulfillment of the law and the law of Christ, when we are married in our union to Christ, guess what? We're, Sinclair Ferguson uses the expression, we're in-laws. <laughs> I thought that was really good. We're, we're, we're in-laws, meaning that we're married, that we, we're married to Christ and we care about the same things that Christ is. Christ was obedient to the Father, obedient even to the point of death, death on the cross. And as it relates to us, as it relates to our hearts, right, we must make sure that we stay grounded with a focus on Christ and grounded in the gospel that doesn't allow us to embrace legalistic tendencies, but also doesn't allow the pendulum to swing so far the other way that we embrace some sort of new antinomianism and against the law. In the, in the book, he does a great job, much better than I could make, trying to make a final point on a sermon. So if you want to pick up a copy, you can read it too. He does a very good job of describing the fact that antinomianism, which is uh, basically uh, an attitude of, of, of being against the law, right? Of a negative view of the law. And legalism are virtually twins. They're, they're, they're actually more like twins than they are like antonyms or opposites. Really, really Profound. Really profound. And I think, you know, if, if we really think about the gospel at face value and the, the, the commands that are even within a biblical, true biblical gospel, they're commands, right? God, through regeneration, causes our hearts to be born again, right? And be able to respond in faith in faith, to repent and trust completely in Christ. And if we think about that, and we, what is repentance, and what does that look like? Well, that's when the law of Christ and all the other commands come into play. They guide us to those commands. And so when we think about the gospel, there is fuel in the gospel. It does need to be upheld. It does need to be celebrated. It does give us the fuel for that love. Does it not? Amen? Amen at church, are you guys with me? Are you guys with me? It does give us that fuel. But at the same time, it cannot be separated from the law of Christ, which which gives us the guidance, which gives us the direction, right? That helps us to know how do, we, how do we honor you, God, in the most effective way? How do we live with a doxological purpose and give you as much glory as we possibly can? 
Well, this completes our study of these four defining actions as we've looked at the lives of the Pharisees. And I hope that they'll continue to cultivate our affection for all that Christ has done for us through the gospel. When I self-righteously judge the actions of others, Christ and the gospel remind me that there is one true judge to whom each of us will give an account. When I self-righteously exalt my own traditions and standards, Christ and the gospel remind me there is only one who has met God's perfect standard. When my heart is divorced from my obedience, Christ and the gospel remind me that my heart was born again to keep my heart connected to my worship through obedience. And when I self-righteously distort the purpose of the law, Christ and the gospel remind me that I desperately need the law and its commands for direction in my sanctification to give God glory. Amen. Amen. Please pray with me.